Charles here. Welcome to the 99th episode of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Woods. On today's episode of the podcast, I talk with Dr. Rob Goodman, Assistant Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. Political rhetoric in general, kind of speaking as a blanket statement, is that a lot of it is constructed by political elites to minimize their exposure to risk, to to minimize their exposure to getting things wrong, to minimize their exposure to facing hostile audiences and being contradicted and, and losing face. So a lot of what stands out to me about contemporary rhetoric is just how processed it is, just how, you know, I use words like, like technologized or systematized, just how many tools high level politicians have in their arsenals for making sure that their messages are as likely as possible to go over well before they're, they're even uttered. Before we get to the interview, I want to share a CFP for the Sweetland Digital Rhetoric Collaborative. From the CFP, the Sweetland DRC Teaching and Learning Materials Collection is a public crowdsourced selection of course materials, prompts, classroom activities, texts, and so on. We see this collection as a space for instructors to share successful classroom resources with fellow instructors. We hope these materials will function as formative models and inspiration for other teachers and display the wide range of approaches to teaching at the intersections of digital studies. We invite you to submit your prompts, activities, readings, and reflection for a potential publication in the Sweetland DRC TLM, that's Teaching and Learning Materials Collection, for any course level and type. And multiple submissions from the same contributor are welcome. If you are interested in sharing any materials to support fellow teachers' digital studies course development, please submit your materials for review to the Sweetland DRC TLM by May 6, 2022. You can find more information about submitting at the Sweetland Digital Rhetoric Collaborative website, digitalrhetoriccollaborative.org. Dr. Rob Goodman is Assistant Professor of Politics and Public Administration at Ryerson University. He is the author of Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions, which is from Cambridge University Press this year, and the co-author of A Mind at Play, in 2017, and Rome's Last Citizen in 2012. He is also the co-editor of a forthcoming volume on populism, demagoguery, and rhetoric in historical perspectives from Oxford University Press. His academic work has been published in journals including the American Political Science Review, 
the Journal of Politics, the Review of Politics, and History of Political Thought. Before beginning his doctoral studies, Rob was a speechwriter in the U.S. House and Senate. I hope you enjoy the interview. Tell us, who are you? What's your name, your title, and your institution, your role there? Who are you? What do you do? That's a a big philosophical question, is it? Yeah. Um, Well, I'll just give you the obvious answer. Uh, I'm Rob Goodman. I'm an assistant professor of politics and public administration at Ryerson University in Toronto. Um, I teach uh, political theory, um, and I especially focus on the history of political thought and the history of rhetoric, which is my uh, main specialty. So I especially write and research on rhetoric. Uh, and before I got into academia and got my PhD, uh, I was a speechwriter in the US House and Senate for about five years. So I, I think that still informs what I do when I work on rhetoric these days. But uh, now, nowadays I, um, I write about the history of rhetoric, I write about political theory, and I uh, teach students. Excellent. Let's kind of work backwards a little bit. And then we're going to get into your book, which you're here to promote. How did you wind up at Ryerson University? How long have you been there? And what kind of classes do you teach? Yeah, so I've been at Ryerson since uh, 2019. Um, It's been a bit of a a weird trip because I think I got less than a full academic year in before COVID hit. So I I was really, you know, loving teaching in person. Uh, I had some good classes and... um, I think it was in, in March of 2020, of course, that, that stuff started happening and I shut my class down. I was actually kind of, you know, I, I was not the most uh, up to date on the news, but I think I was, I was a couple of weeks ahead of other folks. So I, I think that um, uh, I'm glad I did that, but I've also missed um, uh, being in person, you know, of course, after they left it up to individual instructors. And since then, it was just university policy that we've been um, doing everything virtually for the last uh nearly a couple of years, we just started to come back in person. Um, so I teach uh, undergrads and I also teach uh, master students at Ryerson. So my master student class, uh, it's a class called Ethics uh, and Communication and Public Policy. And we just came back in person a couple of weeks ago. So I've taught two of those. Um, and my undergrads, because it's a bigger class, uh, they're coming back um, after winter break uh, around March 1st. And I teach a bunch of undergrad classes. I teach um, Western political thought, which is sort of an intro to the the political theory canon. I teach um, a class called Power, Domination, and Resistance, which is about uh, theories of power and also social movements. Um, I teach contemporary political thought, which is pretty self-explanatory. And then um, I teach a class that I just uh, did for the first time that's called uh, Political Communication, but it's really about theories of rhetoric, and it's the most kind of in line with what I wrote about in this book, which is sort of my, my real wheelhouse as a, as a researcher. But you know how I ended up here, um, I finished my PhD in 2018 at uh, Columbia, and uh, I was lucky enough to get a postdoc at McGill um, in Montreal. So uh, you know, we, we moved up there. Um, we started doing a, it's a crazy amount of paperwork, as you can imagine, when you're doing the re- international relocation with a couple of kids and, and all that. But we did it. Um, and we loved Montreal. And we really loved um, being there. So we really started to focus on um, jobs in Canada um, because we really liked being up here. And we, we thought they had uh, great schools for the kids. Uh, we really kind of wanted to stay in touch with our uh, Montreal community we made around there. Uh, so we were lucky to 
get a job in uh, Toronto, which is just, it's about six hours down the road. So it's not uh, next door to Montreal, but it's uh, close. And we, we love Toronto. We, we've made a great community here as well. And uh, we go back to Montreal in the summer sometimes. So uh, uh, we, we feel really plugged in here and really lucky that we uh, ended up in a good place. I'll ask really, are you from Montreal or is that where you're from? Or are you from somewhere else? No, no, I grew up in Indiana actually. Okay. But we just, no, we really just uh, really, really enjoyed being up here. So we we're like, uh, let's, let's see if we can uh, keep this going. Um, the funny that. thing is, yeah, the, the funny thing is for like, you know, people who did grow up here, like saying that um, you like Montreal, so you want to move to Toronto, it, you know, it, it's like saying you like Spain, so you want to move to Switzerland. It's just like, it's, <laughs> it's actually, um, it, it's not quite the same at all, but, uh, but we're, we're, we're still close. We, we, we love Toronto too. And one thing I didn't know about Toronto uh, when I uh, moved here is that there's a beach, like I knew it was on a lake, but you know, there's like a beach with like, um, uh, beach chairs and, and you can get ice cream. And there's a boardwalk. I, I didn't know that I was living in a, in a beach town until I, I came here. So that's, that's awesome. And like, you know, from June to September, we're just like camped out there every day we can. So, uh, that, that's a nice plus of being here too. That's awesome. Similar experience. I lived in Alabama and then I moved to like Michigan, uh, Illinois, like mm-hmm. going to Lake Michigan. I was like, Oh my gosh, it's a beach. It's like, a, it's a beach. Oh yeah. Well, it's my, uh, my mom's family is from Selma, so we used to go back there a lot when I was growing up. So I've got some Alabama connections too. Oh, that's awesome. I'm from Birmingham. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah. So the title of your book, okay, mm-hmm. is Words on Fire, Eloquence mm-hmm. and Its Conditions. And you sent over some materials and I looked at your CV. Mm-hmm. And there I noticed that your uh, dissertation was mm-hmm. titled Eloquence and Its Conditions. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm making the leap here that your dissertation really set the foundation for the work in this mm-hmm. project. Can you tell us a little bit about your dissertation project? Admittedly, it's been a couple of years yeah. now, but what was that project about? But and importantly, like, how did it come to be? What was its yeah. genesis? And then parlay that into talking about how the book came to be. Yeah, you know, that, that's a good question, because I think people spend a lot of time trying to kind of find the project that is going to be entertaining enough and stimulating enough to carry them through, you know, four or five or six years or however long it is. Um, so I remember when I was uh, when I was at Columbia and I was trying to kind of start casting around for a dissertation project, uh, and I had kind of, I, you know, I must have had a list of four or five ideas I was thinking about. Um, but I got a really good piece of advice from one student who was uh, a little ahead of me in the program. Um, which was, you know, you, you have this background as, as a speechwriter and, and you spend a lot of years with this sort of intimate knowledge of doing this in practice. Like you really shouldn't let that go to waste. It should really be connected in some way to your project. Um, and that really seemed like good advice to me. I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, I really should. I should not try to get um, extra fancy with doing something that's completely out of line with the rest of my experience because I, you know, I wanted to make it count for something. I wanted to make it, um, uh, I, I, I wanted to make it, um, you know, get, get the value out of this time that it's rare that as a political theorist, you've spent time doing in practice what you're writing about in theory. And I kind of felt like that kind of gave me a bit of a BS check sometimes. It gave me a, a, a little be- bit of extra authority when I speak about it. And it just gave me some more uh, comfort with the whole subject. Um, you know, I don't like the idea that that all scholarship is autobiography in some way, but I guess at least in my case, it's connected to that kind of um, that, that part of my life. Um, so I sat down with, the, you know, when, when I realized that, okay, I think this is a good piece of advice that I want to do something that's connected to that part of my life. I sat down and started thinking about what kind of problems 
I wanted to, to, to think about in, in that area. And, you know, if you've read the introduction to the book, it's about kind of what I think is gone wrong with, with contemporary rhetoric, at least, at least in the U.S., which is the context I know the best. So I, I started from there, and I knew that I wanted to write about the history of rhetoric, and I knew that I had interest in the classical world, and especially in, in Cicero and the late Roman Republic. So I thought, well, how, how can I make this connection? How can, how can thinking about ancient rhetoric and ancient theories of rhetoric um, help us get a handle on what's going on in today's political rhetoric. You know, obviously not in a, in a direct way. It's not as if politicians who speak in public and have political careers are you know, fluent in Latin and trained in the classics as they might've been a couple hundred years ago. Um, but I think one of the, the useful things about doing history of political thought is it just kind of, it, it opens up, um, it, it opens your eyes to a bunch of different ways that people have thought about concepts that you sort of take for granted. And, and for it, it opens your eyes to all the different kind of meanings that, that a term you know like eloquence, which is what the book is about in a sense, um, have had for other people that might be helpful to, to help us get a different perspective on what we take for granted now. Um, so I don't think that you know that, that, that Cicero or Quintilian or any of the ancient people I engage with in the book can tell us what's wrong with with political rhetoric now in any kind of direct sense. But they did think about eloquence and rhetoric in a really kind of um, rigorous way and in a way that was informed by by both theory and practice. And that's part of the reason why um, I wanted to start with, with Cicero um, and not, for instance, with Aristotle. You know, one, I think because a lot of the, the political theory that's about rhetoric starts with Aristotle's rhetoric. And there, there's some great work on that. But I, I you know, so, so on the one hand, I think that was a bit of a crowded field. At the same time, there's kind of a Cicero revival going on in which more people are using Cicero in political theory. Um, but the other thing that interested me is that um, Cicero also had this connection between practice and theory. He wrote rhetorical theory. He wrote about um, uh, the history of Roman rhetoric. He wrote about uh, rhetoric from kind of a 30,000 feet perspective. But of course, he was also a practitioner during this whole time and he was off actively engaged in politics the whole time. And that, that sort of combination of, of theory and practice is something that for me runs throughout the whole book. And, and the figures that I engage with most in the book, uh, you know, I talk about Cicero, and the modern era, I talk about people like uh, Burke and, and Macaulay, um, are, are all people who both thought about rhetoric you know, rigorously and systematically, uh, but also practiced it and also were, were noted as people uh, who did it and did it quite successfully. And I thought that this was you know, something that, that, as far as I could tell, other things in this kind of big area weren't, weren't engaging with in the same way. They, they, were, they were more engaged with the theory than with the practice. And I kind of wanted to see if I could do more to bring them together. Let's, let's start with the practice then, and then fold back into some of the contents of the book. You <laughs> mentioned you're a speechwriter. You were a speechwriter uh, at the U.S. Capitol. I have no idea really what that means. I'll be honest. My experience is reruns of the West Wing and, and thinking that certain political figures hire their own speechwriters, right? So tell me a little bit about how did you get into that role? What did you do? Who did you work with? Stuff like that. When were you doing this work? And then we're going to kind of fold that conversation back into the contents of the book. Yeah. Um, it's funny you mentioned the West Wing because... Um, Someone else asked me about that too. And, and the funny thing is I've, I've never watched a single episode. I don't know anything about it. And, and I think part of the reason is because when I was actually um, 
you know, when I was in DC and around these sorts of people, I, I couldn't imagine wanting to spend time watching a show about, you know, anything that had anything to do with, with my job because you're you're for a couple it. of, I was, well, the thing is you're, you're living it, but in so much of a less, um, dramatic way you're living it but like and then you see this like glamorized version where everyone's just like you know 50 percent sexier and 50 percent kind of more articulate and, and like things matter 50 percent more it, you know if not 50 like 200 percent. so it's just it, it was hard for me because i think it would have made the actual job unbearable to see like sexy people um you know doing doing exactly what i was doing with with 200 more articulateness so i was just like no there's there's no way i'm not gonna i'm not gonna subject myself to this but you know when i was um so I um, was a speechwriter when I was pretty young. And, and interestingly enough, I think it's a pretty um, young skewing job because it, it's a thing that if you can write, you don't need a lot of kind of policy background or experience to do it because there are those experienced people on staff and you're kind of working with them. Um, and, and the way I, I ended up working as a speechwriter is I, I had applied for a job at a, a private speechwriting company that did kind of work for contract. Um, and they ended up not being able to hire me, but they had... Uh, you know, they, they knew someone in Chris Dodd's office uh, from Connecticut, um, who's a senator who um, just had an opening at that time. So luckily enough, they, they said, well, why don't you interview at this office? Uh, and that worked out for me. And then after that, about after about uh, a year and a half there, I went to work for Steny Hoyer, who was uh, uh, the number two Democrat in the House. So I worked on both sides of the, the Capitol there. But I, I think the, the thing that it was like day to day, for the most part, was, you know, I, I when I was there, I often thought about it as, as kind of a process of translating. Um because the people that you work with, you know, for the most part, are, are you know policy wonks. They're people who are kind of down in the weeds, writing legislation, um, involved in kind of bargaining on committees, in, with a lot of like really dense uh, subject matter expertise. Like like incredibly smart people in kind of every field you can think of. And oftentimes, what I would do is, if if we were talking about a bill, or we were talking in front of an interest group, or we whatever it is, um, and whatever kind of policy we're trying to talk about, I would speak to them. Um, and, and kind of ask what the main points were and why this is important and, and what the take-home messages are. And then I'd try to kind of write a, a narrative around it. I'd try to write about you know, why this is important from the perspective of someone who isn't a policy wonk. Um, uh, you know, what, why is it morally significant, politically significant, uh, fiscally significant, whatever it is, and try to explain some of the key concepts in, in accessible language. Um, that you know worked even if you weren't a wonk, and of course that depends on the audience because some audiences are more wonky than others, and some are more public than others. But I really think like translation was the best thing to capture. It was kind of being a bridge between uh, people with a lot of expertise and people who are coming to the topic for the first time, and how can you kind of convey the knowledge of this really uh, smart wonky group to people who are coming to this issue for the first time? So that's really, of course, there's a lot of other writing you do too. Like every month, the the jobs report comes out, and you write a statement about how it's either uh, great because the president's a Democrat, or it's uh, awful because the president's a Republican, and it's all his fault. Uh, I did that every month. Um, sometimes I do that on my my little BlackBerry as I was taking the bus to work because that just kind of it, it's such a routine at that, at that point. But every office has someone doing that, and 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 it, you know it doesn't always get picked up in the press. But but in every office, it, it might be a communication staffer, it might be you know some offices are smaller and have don't have a dedicated person to do it. But but every office is putting that out every month in a kind of routine sense. Um, so that's uh, that's kind of the the day to day nuts and bolts of it. And and as I was doing this, uh, about halfway through, um, I uh, started um, studying for a master's in public policy at uh, GW. Um, uh, they have a lot of 
good uh, night classes and they, they, they accommodate a lot of people who work on the Hill and work in uh, think tanks or uh, nonprofits or whatever. And um, I really enjoyed that. My, my intention was just to get a better background in public policy, but it really sort of made me realize and missed that I, I missed being in academia and I missed going to school and it kind of cemented the idea that I wanted to go to uh, grad school full time. So I made that a priority and I, I did the switch in uh, around uh, 2012. All right, last question before we move to the book and really focus on primary arguments and, and that introduction. I've never really talked to a speechwriter, so humor me one more. Um, mm-hmm. Is there like a, a speech or a project or something like that that you're proud of that you worked on or that people would know about or something mm. like that? Well, I don't know if there's anything that people would, would know about off the top of their heads because right. – um, be, you know, because you know you're you're not exactly writing for Obama or stuff that's already on, on the weekly news, but you're, or the, the nightly news. But the stuff that I was really proud of in particular was being there uh, around um, the time that the Affordable Care Act or Obamacare um, was being debated and passed. And of course, you know that was sort of our, our consuming focus for a long time. Um, in the time I think from you know 2009 to 2010, um, and, and I did I did a ton on that. Um, and you know, you know statements, um, op eds. Uh, one thing I'm proud of, I don't think anyone remembers it, but I, I am proud of writing a Cindy Hoyer's floor statement that, that kicked off the debate uh, on the day that the House uh, started to um, uh, debate and, and then passed uh, the final version of, of Obamacare. And that was nice to be there for. Um, I also remember, really interestingly, there was um, this was in the period when there, there were a lot of town halls that that you know uh, that members of Congress would go to, and people were, were very angry and riled up about things around you know socializing healthcare, whatever it was. And there was a lot of um, um, involvement and public opposition and organized opposition um, to Democratic members of Congress who were um, trying to push for Obamacare in that period. And I remember writing, uh, I, I think, Steny Hoyer's kind of or- opening statement at a town hall. Most of this was, was him taking Q&A. So I, I wrote a very brief statement for him. But I, I was really impressed by the fact that you know, he, he's there for a good, must have been three or four hours. And he's taking, you know, Q&A from very, you know, for the most part, very riled up uh, angry, uh, oftentimes belligerent people, and you know, kind of maintained his cool and maintained his um, uh, emphasis on why he thought this was a good idea. But what I liked about that, and this kind of connects to the book a little bit about uh, a little bit, is that despite the fact that the audience was really um, uh, oftentimes pretty belligerent, you know, this is one of the few times I saw someone that I worked for speaking kind of in the teeth of real actual opposition, actually trying to win over an audience and win over a group of people. And I'm not, I'm not sure that anyone's minds change as a result of that, but I did think it kind of stands out in my memory as a really sort of unique time because for the most part, um, you're, you're either speaking to, to groups who are just sort of indifferent and just want to know that you're there, or you're speaking to people who you can you presume support you in the first place. But speaking, you know, in, in the face of, um, that kind of hostility and still giving people, you know, the, the time to, to take what they say seriously and to respond in a serious way um, doesn't happen that often uh, in politics in general. And when it does, um, it doesn't always happen constructively. But I, I think that was that was neat and interesting to see, because I think in a sense, and this is something I talk about in the book, you know, going back to how someone like Cicero would have experienced politics and rhetoric, um, a lot of that kind of immediate confrontation with a public who might not agree with you and might not like you uh, and might have reason to distrust you. Uh, and nevertheless, you're going to speak anyway. You um, kind of brings you back to kind of the, the original situation of rhetoric as I kind of conceive it, this idea about uh, you know winning over opposition and speaking in the face of disagreement. Um, 
and that that was that was neat to see. Um, but also for the way it stood out from, uh, you know, I think what the, what the day to day was. Right. One thing I really appreciate, and you mentioned President Obama, <clears throat> a matter of fact, in your introduction, which is titled <laughs> "Just Words," and I'll ask you about that in a minute. Uh, you 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 begin with a, 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 a bit about President Obama, and I believe you referred to him as the greatest orator of his generation. Um, and we can talk about that. But what I really appreciate is that you explain how um, the Obama campaign um, was able to collect all these data points and kind of hone this approach. And then you immediately pivot and explain how that was used again, right, by other campaigns like Ted Cruz in 2016. And of course, uh, Donald Trump uh, and Cambridge and the relationship with Cambridge Analytica. I think that was fascinating pivot and a really strong move. So let's start with this question. What are some of the primary arguments of your book? And then let's talk about Obama a little bit in terms of his position as a rhetor. Yeah. So I guess one of the primary arguments of the book is that um, one of the things that's wrong with uh, political rhetoric in general, kind of speaking as a blanket statement, is that a lot of it is constructed um, by political elites uh, to minimize their exposure to risk, to, to minimize their exposure um, to getting things wrong, uh, to minimize their exposure to facing hostile audiences and being contradicted and, and losing face. Um, so a lot of what stands out to me about contemporary rhetoric is just how um, uh, processed it is, just how, um, you know, I, I use words like like technologized or systematized, um, just how many tools um, high level politicians have in their arsenals for making sure that their messages are as likely as possible to go over well before they're, they're even uttered. And I understand why this is done. I understand that um, you know, politicians feel like they have an obligation to, to uh, do as well as they can for their for their agenda and their party. They want to be as successful as they possibly can. Um, and in the process of doing this, though, um, I think they lose a lot of what makes rhetoric a really valuable and democratically valuable practice. Um, what I think makes it democratically valuable, at least from my perspective, is that it ought to involve some kind of uh, what I call risk sharing or burden sharing between the speaker and the audience. It, it ought to show that the speaker, despite the fact that he or she is speaking from a privileged position, is still putting something on the line in the way that he or she is asking the audience to put something on the line. So I guess what I mean is that when you, when you listen, if you, if you really listen with an open mind to someone um, trying to persuade you to change your mind, uh, you're, you're taking on certain kinds of risks or burdens. Um, it's possible that you're going to find that you were wrong. It's possible that you, you change your mind or find your beliefs rearranged or find your identity or sense of yourself rearranged. You know, that, that doesn't always happen. But if you're actually listening, um, you're open to the possibility that that might happen and it might be kind of disorienting or even painful. Um, so I think political persuasion asks us as listeners to do this all the time. But in order for that to be, I think, a fair move, the person doing the persuading also has to risk something. And I think the risks are a little higher on the person doing the persuading because these risks are the risks of um, uh, humiliating yourself in public at the extreme or, or being contradicted or being heckled or being um, uh, shouted down or having things go so badly that um, you, you, you lose face in a significant way. And I think that this kind of, you know, what I describe as a rhetorical bargain between the speaker and the audience 
it is not, you know, it's not necessarily equal because rhetoric is not really about uh, strict equality in the sense because there's this asymmetry built into it. Um, a few people speak, a lot more people listen. And, and from that perspective, it's kind of democratically questionable, especially in a society that has a lot of political inequality built into it. So this idea of, of the speaker approaching the audience and asking them to put something on the line because he or she is going to put something on the line as well, you know, to me, is one of the things that makes rhetoric a little more acceptable to democracy. It's one of the things that levels the playing field a little bit and, and brings a degree of, of equity to this relationship. You know, I, I describe it as when the speaker actually takes real risks, um, he or she is showing regard for the audience and, and meeting them in a kind of in a common space together and saying that I'm going to um, take you seriously as fellow citizens and not just as someone who's trying to get your support through any means possible. And And I think the lack of this in a lot of contemporary political rhetoric. Oh, you know, there are a lot of reasons for this lack, and there are a lot of reasons why, um, uh, you know, why it's just a part of the political landscape. It's very understandable, but it also, I think, explains a lot of the uh, discomfort that people feel with rhetoric in the present, a lot of the way that the politicians, uh, just as a group of people, um, often, you know, turn people off or give people the, the, uh, um, the creeps. Or give, because I think it's just this the sense that um, uh, you know politicians um, oftentimes in their way of speaking aren't really demonstrating that basic regard for you um, as a person as a co-citizen uh, that might be the kind of regard they could demonstrate in, in a riskier situation and I think why this matters isn't just because of aesthetics or it's because you know it bothers us when we hear people people speak a certain way, it provides a real opening for people who, um, you know, people on the more populist side of politics and the more demagogic side of politics uh, to suggest that, it, you know, uh, unlike those politicians, I'm just going to tell it like it is. I'm going to actually look like I'm risking something and demonstrating regard for you. Um, you know, so when I think about Donald Trump in, in the context of American politics, you know, the, the thing that strikes that stands out to me more than anything is that most Americans heard him you know, running for president in, in 2015, 2016 for the first time and thought, well, this doesn't sound like any politician I have, I've ever heard. This mm-hmm. sounds authentic to me in a way that that um, that other politicians don't sound authentic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I go on to say that I think that kind of the, the authenticity that he projects is, is fake in a lot of ways. And it's not really it's not real authenticity. It's not real kind of vulnerability. But I think because the market has been so, you know, the market for that kind of um uh, authenticity or riskiness is so empty. Uh, even the kind of fake version attracts a lot of interest. So I think it really matters for, for the health of democratic politics to think about ways of rebuilding the, this bargain between speakers and listeners, to think about ways of um, uh, uh, of how to bring a little bit more um, balance to this really asymmetric and hierarchical situation that happens when the ordinary politician addresses the ordinary audience. One of the things that stood out to me as I was taking a look at your text is that, you know, the, the title, the, the post colon rather, is mm-hmm. eloquence, right? Eloquence mm-hmm. and its conditions. But mm-hmm. there is a tension that I think I've identified in the title of your, uh, and I'm sorry, in the introduction of your book, which is just words, right? So mm-hmm. just words, I think there's some tension there with what I think of as eloquence. How mm-hmm. did you land on that? title for your introduction. What does just words mean? And how can we kind of navigate, negotiate the tension if, if it's um, if it's real? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for me, you know, it means a couple of things. I think it, it, it's sort of the, the dismissive view of, of political speech as it's just it's just words. It doesn't matter 
Um, and it's especially easy, you know, to kind of um, take that dismissive view from the point of view that that you, if you're the person kind of describing something as just words, is sort of communicating in a way that almost isn't words. It is sort of it is kind of authentic and unmediated in a way that a lot of populists want to be. You know, so where I got it from specifically was the the exchange between uh, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton in the uh, 2016, one of the 2016 presidential debates, um, you know, in which you know, Hillary Clinton. Um, you know, talked about why America is great because it's good. And she talked about, uh, the, you know, the importance of accepting other people. And it was a lot of sort of valuable, if kind of, you know, bromidical, um, uh, you know, lines about, uh, you know, the importance of, of democracy, and mutual acceptance. And it was, you know, something that was kind of easy to agree with. Um, and Donald Trump dismissed this as he said, well, it's just words, folks. It's just words. Um, and that's interesting to me because, of course, he's using words, too, in an obvious sense. But I think it really gets to the idea that, that part of what makes this sort of demagogic rhetoric appealing uh, and different is that it's from the perspective that, that other people's words are somehow are words and yours are more real than words. Uh, it's from the perspective that some kind of political language is so processed uh, and so um, uh, systematic and systematized and so unobjectionable that its word quality, its, its wordiness kind of stands out to you. Uh, in a way that that authentic political speech doesn't. Um, now, you know, as I say, I'm not I'm not suggesting that Trump is right to dismiss this as just words, but I, I think you have to understand why that kind of dismissal of the more sort of processed and tested political speech resonates for a lot of people. If you can understand, if you want to undermine that appeal, you have you have to understand it first. Um, I, I think, you know, um, from the perspective of of you know many years after that campaign, I think it's pretty obvious that. Um, you know, Trump has a, his own brand uh, of process speech and his own kind of predictability and his own kinds of risk aversion that have to do with the ways in which he, he selects his audience. And he seems to be kind of incapable of things going badly because of a bad um, um, misspeaking or, or speaking in a way that caused him to lose face can't really cause him to experience shame. He doesn't really have that kind of quality that he can perceive a rhetorical situation going badly. So there, there are a lot of ways in which he practices his own kind of risk aversion. Um, but I think the first step to understanding why that kind of speech is so appealing to so many people, you know, not just in the U.S. context, but really around the world where there are right-wing populist movements, is understanding how it presents itself as something that is almost more authentic than words, whereas the words of the mainstream politician are, are just words. Um, and part of where I get to the idea of eloquence in this is that um, eloquence is sort of an idea about political speech that sort of embraces the, the word equality, embraces embraces the, the stylized artificial quality of it, but also says in order for this, this quality to come out, it has to be presented in a context of, of uh, riskiness uh, and spontaneity and actually putting something on the line in a way that that you know, mainstream politics in, in many ways seems averse to, to me. The inability to feel shame. Uh, what mm -hmm. an a, extremely interesting way to... Um, explain that uh, person. And also I'm making perhaps a connection that may not be too, super strong to like American ideals as well, right? Um, and what it means to be American. Alas, a couple of questions. You mentioned mm -hmm. demagogue and demagoguery. I've had rhetorical theorists on here, political theorists on here. Is Donald Trump a demagogue and why? <laughs> or why <Well>, not? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I think my perspective is that that he is. I think you know, kind of putting me on the spot, it's sort of hard to come up with the definition of, of demagogue that I really satisfied with off the top of my head. Sure, but and I appreciate you. I and guess part of what what demagoguery, yeah, 
No, no, no. Yeah. So I, I think a demagogue is someone who acts in the context of, of democratic politics, and oftentimes the kind of speech he uses, you know, preys on on people's worst instincts rather than asking them to exercise their their judgment and their reason. So I don't think you have to suggest that, that being a demagogue implies a certain kind of set of politics because you can have you know a demagoguery across mm-hmm. the ideological spectrum. But I, I think rhetoric is really closely connected to this idea of of judgment of making choices collectively. Uh, under uncertainty that really apply, you know, require us to to uh, apply our brains to difficult questions and think through things together. And I think demagoguery kind of can short circuit that process. So I guess uh, one of the things that that makes Trump demagogic to me is this kind of quality of of the absence of shame that I talked about, um, and by which I don't mean to say that he's just sort of um, uh, personally shameless, that he's a lousy person, because I don't know how he kind of conducts himself in his personal life. It kind of certainly seems like nothing can make him feel ashamed or shame. But, I, you know, you don't really need to kind of psychoanalyze him to suggest this. You know, what I mean instead is that one thing that I take from from ancients who have who've written about rhetoric, like Cicero, is that shame is actually a really important part of eloquence, that eloquence is closely connected. Uh, and the kind of speech that that mobilizes audiences' judgment is closely connected to um, the ability to feel shame um, and the possibility of shame, um, which doesn't mean that eloquence is something that makes you ashamed, but it only kind of happens in the conditions in which you could feel ashamed if it goes badly. You know, so one kind of moment in Cicero's rhetorical theory I keep coming back to in the book uh, is when he talks about his mentor saying that whenever he gets up to speak, uh, he feels a sense of deep shame or potential shame that he starts trembling. He says, I tremble in my whole heart and in every limb. Um, and I don't think he's describing stage fright because he's a very experienced speaker, but it's, it's the idea that um, if you are a properly eloquent speaker uh, and, and if you have this capacity for shame, the possibility of it going wrongly, um, you know, being dropped in the situation of extreme vulnerability and extreme riskiness uh, is enough to make you feel, um, you know, the, 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 um, uh, the proximity of shame, uh, how close you are to shame if things go badly. But this experience that that that, that uh, the the elite speaker who gets up to speak has the possibility of being ashamed, I think, um, is really connected to this idea of eloquence. Uh, it's connected to this idea of eloquence because eloquence sort of emerges from these situations. It emerges from these situations when things could go really badly, uh, when you're sort of on the precipice of them going badly, and then they don't. Um, but that that is really not possible without the possibility of kind of falling off the edge into this condition of, of shame. And I think the other reason why you know Cicero, at least in his theory, wants to suggest that shame is a big part of the pursuit of eloquence is this idea that, that every rhetorical situation is unique. Uh, every rhetorical situation is unpredictable. You're, you're confronting a group of people um, who, you know, despite as well as you might know them and as well as you might be able to predict how they um, could react, have the freedom to react however they want. You know, have the freedom to to push back, to, to heckle, to yell, to throw things, to completely reject you from moment to moment. And that, that's what kind of brings this kind of incipiently democratic quality to this encounter between the speaker and the audience. But again, that means that um, how things might go, um, and whether or not this will result in you being celebrated or being shamed for the way you speak, um, is really up in the air every single time. At least, you know, this is sort of the, the ideal in the theory. This is not the the reality, but this is sort of the ideal we, we strive towards. So I think, you know, from the perspective of demagoguery, I think one of the things that's important for demagoguery is, is this incapacity to feel shame because it takes the kind of, it takes the kind of, you know, one-to-one relationship of speaker and audience out of the equation. Um, 
that you, you can almost think of, of, of the ability to feel shame or, or shamefulness as kind of part of the constitution or structure of this rhetorical encounter. Um, that if it's not there, something really kind of valid is missing because all of a sudden there's no check on the speaker and there's no really reason for the speaker to defer to the audience or take seriously what the audience thinks because the audience might uh, the audience might try to shame the speaker. But if the speaker can't feel shame, that kind of valuable check on what the speaker can say uh, is totally lost. Right. So I think that that's part of what makes Trump sort of a, a kind of fake, um, a fake authentic speaker is you can't have that authenticity without that quality of, of shamefulness. And I also think that it's it's this idea that um, you know as much as any politician, he speaks to really kind of carefully curated audiences, audiences who are primed to agree with him. He, he like almost everyone else in contemporary politics, is uh, in a bubble and a technologically assisted bubble too. You know, he takes as much data from uh, his supporters' um, um, purchasing habits and, and mobility habits and uh, cell phone data as much as anyone else does, which is part of the Cambridge Analytica scandal. But all these things are about creating sort of a, a bubble around the, the elite politician that prevent him from coming into contact with with uh, with with failure or rejection, uh, you know, which I think in Trump kind of gets magnified by this personal quality of shamelessness. So you know, I think as much as he presents himself as a contrast to, to mainstream political speech, and as much as um, audiences kind of see him as that kind of refreshing contrast, I think it sort of evaporates on, on, on closer look. But but again, the reason that this is so appealing is I think because of the poverty of mainstream rhetoric in general, that there's there's a problem at the heart of mainstream rhetoric that makes this kind of fake version um, so attractive and so appealing. That's really what was driving that question, right? You mentioned earlier, like so much of it is of his rhetoric is processed, right? So I was thinking is, is he the demagogue or is he just simply the conduit, conduit for demagoguery? Uh, an extended conversation we can have at a different time, because I do want to move to this issue of data. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, uh, reading the book and, and learning a little bit about you through this conversation, certainly there are some intersections between our um, our research. But one of the things that I found so um, keenly interesting, all right, was that you did discuss algorithmic rhetoric in your mm-hmm in your introduction. And so for me, when I looked at the book uh, title and read the introduction, and I was thinking that we were gonna go back in history uh, and look at Cicero and all these other folks, Macaulay and Tocqueville, which we do, Mm -hmm. you also do spend some time on algorithmic rhetoric. So please allow me to read a quote from your introduction and then perhaps we can, uh, you can explain the importance of algorithmic rhetoric to the arguments that you're making. Okay. And here's the quote, but should the development of algorithmic rhetoric trouble us as democratic citizens? Many of the criticisms of data-driven rhetoric are familiar ones. It is founded on serial invasion of privacy. It seeks to bypass citizens' considered judgment of policies and leaders. Its narrowly tailored messages dismantle the shared public sphere and contribute to partisan polarization. It enables a form of political redlining in which all the disengaged and disillusioned are simply not targeted for persuasion at all. And that's the end of the quote. So how does proceed, I'm sorry, how does algorithmic rhetoric play into the arguments of your book and this state of uh, the lack of eloquence in rhetoric? Yeah, so, and, and thanks for reading that. In particular, so we I talk about algorithmic rhetoric 
as rhetoric that is all about this kind of degree of, of risk aversion, um, rhetoric that is about um, predicting to the extent possible whether a message will be received before the message is, is uttered or said. Um, you know, I said kind of at the other end of the spectrum is the idea that the only way to figure out how a message goes over uh, is to speak it, is, is to utter it, that you find out how things go in the course of saying them. Uh, and that's kind of, I think, sort of a more authentic encounter between the, the speaker and the audience. But, you know, um, contemporary politics really makes that incredibly difficult. And I, and I want to say kind of in the history of rhetoric, I'm not trying to idealize this sort of golden age um, in which this never happened. Because the interesting thing for me about, about Cicero is that um, there were plenty of techniques for systematizing and formalizing rhetoric uh, in his time, just as much as there are in ours. Um, you know, he didn't have access to opinion polls, but there were very sophisticated rhetorical handbooks and guidelines and manuals that taught people uh, how to make rhetoric as predictable as possible from the speaker's perspective. And although Cicero often kind of relied on these things in practice, at least in his ideal and theory of rhetoric, he talked about why these are uh, harmful and bad and why a real orator shouldn't want to use them. Um, so when I think about contemporary rhetoric, I think about the ways in which the, this um, you know, long-standing idea that is as old as the history of rhetoric is that 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 part of being a, a political lead is having access to these kind of systematized means of persuasion. Um, I think about the ways in which the, the systematization has just gotten so much you know more ramped up, um, you know, through access uh, to sophisticated data as it is now. So I think about the ways in which um, you know the the Trump and Biden campaign apps in the 2020 election could scrape users' uh, data and could even scrape their their geolocation. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I, well, I think about the way in which political campaigns um, mobilize people's purchasing histories and, and magazine subscriptions. You know, I think about the way in which uh, the, the Obama campaign um, did uh, A/B testing. Uh, you know, not not just the Obama campaign. This is pretty standard practice, I think. But did A/B testing on what kinds of uh, messages will be most effective on its website and which kind of generate the most clicks and the highest dollar return. So all these things are, are you know, as I suggested, they're about taking the risk out of rhetoric. They're about gen, you know, increasing the odds that your message will go over well before you've even said it. Um, and again, this is not especially new. This is, you know, goes way, way back in the history of rhetoric. But what I wanted to suggest is a little bit different in our era is that you sort of lost the, the countervailing ideal, the countervailing ideal of, of the orator, almost with a capital O, as this, this valuable and interesting social role that um, gives people a reason not to go down too far this path of, of systematization. Uh, and rationalization of rhetoric, because something that is valuable in being an orator is sort of going into the forum or going into the public arena without these tools to protect you, um, because that, that's what makes an orator kind of a, an admirable and courageous thing to be. And, and as that kind of social role has fallen into decline and disuse, I don't think there are a lot of cultural or social checks uh, on the ability of any political figure to um, make their attempts at persuasion as uh, predictable and risk averse as possible with these sort of bad democratic consequences that I've talked about. You know, so when I when I talk about the, the harms of algorithmic rhetoric, you know, in the quote you pointed out, I talked about a lot of those um, fears that are already out there. Uh, fears about things like the loss of privacy. Fears about things like um, you know this idea of political redlining. You know, kind of by analogy to segregation, the idea that some people are targeted as engaged citizens, some people don't get targeted at all, um, or the fear that 
uh, because there's so much micro-targeting that's possible that, that I could get a completely different message from you based on which magazines you subscribe to. There's no kind of common space in which we can be co-citizens together and listen to the same message and deliberate together. So I think all these things are real. But what I want to suggest is that the, the damage that these techniques do isn't strictly limited to, to their effects or how useful they are. Um, you know, because as a lot of people point out, maybe their usefulness is exaggerated. Maybe micro-targeting isn't sort of the end-all and be-all uh, of persuasion. And, and maybe it's the case that all this data that was scraped in the Cambridge Analytica scandal didn't really help politicians craft more more accessible persuasive messages. And what I want to say is I want to take those critiques seriously and say the problem isn't necessarily what these things do. The problem is the aspiration they represent in the people who use them. You know, the problem is that in the willingness to try to systematize rhetoric as much as possible. Um, there, there's a distinct lack of regard for the public that I think is just sort of universal on, on, the, um, on the basis of the political class. Um, it's not so much that these techniques always work across the board. It's that um, you know, the powers that be generally believe that they work um, and put their money where their mouth is and, and spend quite a bit on hoping that they work. And even if they are not as effective as advertised, they represent this aspiration to um, uh, you know to, to meet the audience on on really unequal terms that I think is is bad for the democratic reasons I've talked about. Taking the risk out of rhetoric. Well, so what does it mean for this book? What does it mean for your book to come out now in 2022 in our current cultural moment? <laughs> well, I think it means first of all that all the references to 2016 and before that are getting super dated. So that that's just the nature of academic publishing, right? You, you start off in one world, and you know, one thing that I actually struggled with is I, I mentioned Trump quite a bit, and as I was finishing this in in 2021, I think I had to think about whether to put the references to him in, in past tense or present tense. Like, is he coming back? I don't know. So I think I kind of split the difference. Yeah. Um, I think I split the difference on that. But what what does it mean for now? Um, I think it means for now that um, the, the, the appeal of, of right-wing populism, um, that's one of the things I'm engaging with in this book, uh, really isn't going anywhere. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking from, from Canada, in which we, you know, we've had a, an occupation going on at the Capitol and international trade blocked right. by, by what appears to be a really kind of um, minority or, or fringe movement. Um, of, of not just sort of uh, right-wing and ex-police and ex-military people, but of uh, anti-vax people and, and of people who object to, to vaccine mandates across the board. And especially in Canada, this isn't really a popular position. Um, and, you know, I, I, I've looked at the polling that suggests that the, the vaccine mandates are, are still really popular across the board. And, and yet you have a really kind of organized uh, movement that can really put this issue on the agenda in a way that doesn't equate to its kind of to its to its uh, uh, to its numbers to its influence in in, in polling or or an election, uh, partly because of the way that this movement is able to mobilize a really kind of committed support. And I think that this kind of phenomenon of of, of really mobilized right wing populism uh, on the march in many different places in the world, you know, even in Canada, which which kind of thought of itself as sort of immune to these sorts of things. Um, is going to be a part of the political landscape, as far as I can tell, for the foreseeable future. Um, and I don't want to suggest that, that rhetoric is the only thing that matters or the only way of understanding it, but, but the expertise that I can contribute is in this area of rhetoric. And I do think that, um, that, that one of the things that drives engagement with, with populism across the spectrum 
spectrum is, is this dissatisfaction with, with mainstream and establishment political rhetoric. So I'm really trying to send a warning to the extent possible um, to politicians who have uh, problems, and rightfully so, with this kind of right-wing mobilizing, that, um, that, that they bear a responsibility for it. They bear responsibility for it in the kind of you know, regard and engagement they show to the public, um, that uh, you know, for the most part, people are pretty smart and, and pretty savvy when it comes to their engagement with, with public figures. Um, and then I think people can tell w- when they're not being given the regard they ought to have as, as democratic citizens. And I think that, that, that the problems in the political mainstream bear some kind of responsibility for the growth of populism. That, that in other words, I, you know, I want to suggest to, um, to the political mainstream that, that they ought to get their house in order in a sense, or otherwise they're not going to have an effective kind of uh, counter against the growth in populist movements that can be damaging in all sorts of ways. Um, in other words, I want to suggest that, that, that the mainstream bears its own degree of responsibility. And again, I don't think that the rhetoric explains everything. I don't think that this is the, the only kind of thing we ought to pay attention to, but to the extent that I can contribute some expertise on this, it, it's in this particular area. Um, that I think a, 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 a politics that was more um, uh, spontaneous, uh, risky, came with actual kind of possibilities of public figures losing face uh, would be a little less predictable, but I think it would also be um, more valuable in democratic terms. And I think could take some of the wind out of the sails of, of um, populism and especially right-wing populism around the world. Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions is the title of the book. Rob Goodman, thanks so much for chatting with me today. Thanks so much. It's it's a pleasure to be on. I really appreciate the conversation. my interview with Dr. Rob Goodman. It was such a treat to chat with him and learn about his work, his work in political rhetoric, and his time as a speechwriter in Washington. Make sure to pick up his book, Words on Fire, Eloquence and Its Conditions, out this year. Thanks for chatting, Rob. Before we go, I want to remind everyone not to forget to submit your nominations for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award. To nominate someone for the Big Rhetorical Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, submit an email with your name, institutional affiliation, a 200-word bio, and CV as a single PDF to thebigrhetorical at gmail.com. Explain in the 200-word bio how you or your nominee meet the criteria for the award. Use the subject line, Emerging Scholar Award. Nominations are accepted until May 31st, 2022. Self-nominations are welcome and previous nominees are encouraged to apply. For more information about the TBR Podcast Emerging Scholar Award, including criteria, please visit the Big Rhetorical Podcast website, thebigrhetoricalpodcast.weebly.com. 
I'll be back next week with another new interview for episode 100 of the Big Rhetorical Podcast. Until then, always be listening rhetorically. The Big Rhetorical Podcast is produced by Exalt Digital Media. Exalt Digital Media, not for profit. This podcast was recorded on the sacred lands of the Tuscarora people, and we recognize and respect the people of the Kahari, Eastern Band of Cherokee, Haliwa Saponi, Meheran, Okanichi, Band of Saponi, Saponi, and Wakamal Suen. Music for the Big Rhetorical Podcast is brought to you by DJ Lang, Stefa Helix, and Sky Jordan. <laughs>